Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. Bible with me this morning to the book of Galatians and the second chapter. The book of Galatians and the second chapter. This morning we are dealing with the third and final part of three historical narratives that show that the gospel of Jesus Christ, and specifically with the revelation that Paul had of Jesus and the new covenant, that this gospel didn't come from man, and it stands in authority above man. Amen? This is the point, that the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, crucified, and the relationship that we have with Him through faith and repentance, not of works, that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it didn't come from man, it's not tainted by man, it's not polluted by man, it didn't originate from man, that is the gospel. And so Paul is speaking in chapter 1, verse 11 to 29, where he describes the fact that his gospel, Paul's gospel, didn't come from man or any human source, where he says that he didn't receive the gospel from any man, nor was he taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 29. We studied that a few weeks ago, and there, or 24, not verse 29 through 24. And then we looked at chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. And the second narrative that he described is his meeting with the apostles. His meeting with the apostles. And he describes this, that though his gospel didn't come from men or any human authority, it was affirmed by anointed men or human authority. In that the apostles heard his gospel, he set it forth for them, and they agreed that this was the gospel, and he says they didn't add anything to my gospel. They didn't tell me there was anything lacking or insufficient, that what I was preaching was sufficiently the gospel, and it was nothing, uh, there was nothing in it that needed to be changed or taken away or added, that it was the gospel. And then so lastly, we will see that Paul's gospel stands in authority even among the most influential of men or human instruments, right? So it didn't come from man. He didn't get his revelation from even the other apostles. But the other apostles did affirm that gospel. But even the gospel, though it was affirmed by men, still has authority over those men. And he's going to talk about how he had a conflict with the Apostle Peter and that the gospel is so supreme and so authoritative that Paul had to rebuke Peter when his life was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Amen? You catching that flow of thought this morning? It didn't come from man. Man approved it, but even those men were subject to it. Amen? The fact that they approved it didn't mean that they have the authority to go back and edit or change or say that it can be played out in different ways. He says, no, this message has authority over every person, including me and including Peter. Right? That was his message in chapter 1 where he says that if anyone preach unto you any other gospel than the one I preached unto you, including me, right? Right? then let that person 
be accursed. So the gospel has authority over Paul who preached it, and the gospel has authority over Peter who affirmed it. The gospel stands in authority above all human authors. So when churches develop traditions that they put tradition and church authority on the same plane as the gospel and the word of God, guess which one is wrong? Guess which one rises above the other? Guess which one has the right to rebuke every authority? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so as we're studying this book, I want to remind you that the purpose of it, as our title tells us, uh, the title of our series is All One by The One. I remind you that the issue is that these are mainly non-Jewish believers who've gotten saved from Gentile nations. Paul preached the gospel to them. They repented. They believed in Jesus Christ. They were saved. And then he describes in the book of Galatians, and then it's described for us in the book of Acts chapter 15, that after they received the gospel, after they believed on Jesus, certain men, Jewish men, came from Jerusalem and said, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. There are minimal requirements of the law that every person is required to keep. And if you don't keep at least these minimal requirements of the law, then you are not truly saved. And therefore, you're not truly a part of the covenant community. We can't fellowship with you as we could with Jews who are keeping the tenets of the law. So that there, there's a division in the church. There's the, the really holy spiritual ones who really love God and are fulfilling the commands that he expects. And then the ones that call on Jesus, but they're not doing the things that Jesus expects. And these are in a class by themselves, and these are in a class by themselves, and they can't really have fellowship. That's the point. And we're going to see that played out in this narrative that we're about to study. And Paul is his Paul gives this message that we are all one by the one. We are all one people by the one gospel. There are not varied gospels. There's not a Jewish gospel and a non-Jewish gospel. There's not a a law-keeping gospel and a non-law-keeping gospel. There is one gospel that saves. And that one gospel that saves makes us one people with no divisions. That Ephesians would tell us, That through the cross, the middle wall of hostility that was between us, that made a distinction and a separation between us, that said, these are the Jews who are really holy and purified and set apart unto God, and here are the people that are not, that middle wall has been removed. And we are all brought together by one thing, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so let us consider this narrative. We're going to read this morning in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 11 to 18. This story or this narrative really goes to verse 21, but there's a difficulty in preaching all of it together, uh, and it's this. As Paul is giving this explanation, you find that this is rooted in a historical event, and most of this language that Paul's going to be using is his theological argument to Peter about why what he's doing is wrong. The problem is he goes on to the point that you get the feeling that these are probably not, not all of these words are probably in what Paul says. And if it was, he's an amazing on the spot thinker because he pretty much had a very concise, very well put together entire message in this one statement. These, these one few phrases or uh, statements that he gives. And so you get the feeling that he's probably taking all of the things that he said and putting it together in a homily or in a sermon form and smoothing out the rough edges, right? Because this is what we do when we record events. Sometimes we don't say exactly what was said. We, We round off the corners because we don't always say things as smoothly as we intended, right? So the point is, Peter might have read these statements later and goes, well, Paul, that's pretty much what you said, but you smoothed it out a little bit. Like, I, I don't know if you said all of that, but it was the, the theological point, I got it, you convicted me, you were right, but you, you sort of threw in a little extra detail and made it smoothed out. 
So what we're going to do, and he ends with a theological, personal idea that's probably an add-on to these statements. So we're going to deal with verse 19 to 21 next week. We're just going to deal with that separately. Uh, or And so this morning we're going to deal with verses 11 to 18. So let's read our text this morning. He says in verse 11, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned, or he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself." fearing the circumcision, or the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He says in verse 15, For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, or God forbid. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I want to speak to you this morning that the gospel is an authority above even the most influential and anointed of men. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us and I thank you that you give us understanding and revelation and wisdom. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful to the word of God, that you would help us to be a bride as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ that is without spot or blemish, that is faithful to the covenant made in blood. And we thank you this morning that we get the privilege of knowing you by grace beyond anything that we could ever do of ourselves. We love you, Lord. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says in verse 11, he says, but when Cephas came to Antioch. Now there's a difficulty here in putting together and stringing together all of the events of the New Testament in that there's not a time we're told in the book of Acts or anywhere else when the apostle Peter went to Antioch. It's just not said. There's nothing in the New Testament that tells us when he went. And so one of the things that we have to consider is if you'll turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 13, we're going to see that there are four times that Paul was in the city of Antioch. Four times that Paul was in the city of Antioch before the time that it seems that this event took place. So Paul is telling us about a historical event And I place this event at the end of Paul's first missionary journey that's recorded in Acts 13 and 14 and comes to a conclusion in 15. And I believe that in chapter 15, when Jews come from Jerusalem and they're compelling the Gentiles to be circumcised, that this is uh, the event that sparked Paul to write the the book, the letter, excuse me, to all the churches of Galatia. 
Because as we discussed before, if you have your handout that we gave you the first uh, few weeks that we did this series, that the region of Galatia is not the, uh, the tribal area of Galatia, northern Galatia, but it is the southern region of Galatia where Lystra and Derby and Iconium are all listed. Uh, that is the southern region. There's a general area. So it's, Galatia is not a local city church. It's a region of all of these different churches. And so when he's writing this letter, it's not just one local church that is defected and compromised and been pressured to accept things that contradict the gospel. It's a whole region of churches, all the place places that Paul went for 18 months preaching the gospel. These Jewish people came from Jerusalem behind him and told all of these Gentile believers that if they weren't circumcised, they couldn't be saved. And so if we believe that, if we accept that premise, then it must have been before Acts 15 that Peter or Cephas was in Antioch. So we see in Acts chapter 13 where it says in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so we see that this is one point that Paul, or Saul, was in Antioch. We see as well in verse 13, after Paul and Barnabas had been sent off and they went preaching, it says in verse 13, now Paul and his uh, companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And so this is the second time that they were there. And then we also see in chapter 14... Chapter 14... In verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And we see that they left that place. It says in verse 24, Then, so after they were in Antioch, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they came down to Italia, verse 26, and there they sailed to Antioch. And so there are at least four events, at least four events where Paul is in Antioch that Peter potentially could have been there at the same time. Now, it's my contention or my assumption, and again, it's, it's that, and it's an assumption. We're not told exactly when Peter was there, but I think that it fits the narrative that it was the same event in the same place that the Jews were compelling the non-Jews to be circumcised. Let's read right there from verse 26, and it says, And from there they sailed to Antioch. What happened? when they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, that's in Antioch, and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And so they got the whole church together in Antioch and they're going, this is, at this time, this is a predominantly, not exclusively, but a predominantly Jewish culture. And he's going back to the church and going, guys, this is amazing. All of these non-Jews heard the gospel, repented, and believed. Like you, you all know about Peter preaching to Cornelius at Joppa. And, and these non-Jews got saved and that was wonderful. And there's a few non-Jewish believers here in Antioch and that's great. But guys, this is not a random thing happening once in a while or in a few spots all over this region that I went preaching, all of these people, these, these non-Jews, these Gentiles, were accepting the gospel and being saved. And the church is rejoicing. In, verse, in chapter 15, in verse 1, but, isn't this how it always works? There's a testimony. Look what God's doing. Oh, but God's not the only one working. Amen? Right? Even when I don't see it, you're working. That's exciting, isn't it? 
But a lot of times you can see that somebody else is working, right? Who else is working? Chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is telling us there are those in Antioch who are not circumcised, they are not Jews. And he's coming there and he's going, you're all rejoicing. And you're saying, hey, they're Christians now. They believe on Jesus, but Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He's Jewish, right? Christ is not his last name. That's the Greek transliteration or translation of Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. He's a Messiah and he's a Messiah to Jews. He's a Jewish Messiah. And you're claiming that these people believe in the Jewish Messiah, but they're not keeping the Jewish law. There's an inconsistency. They cannot be saved. If they're truly repenting, truly believing in the Jewish Messiah, then they will keep the law of the Jews. They will keep the law of Moses. He says, if you don't do that, you can't be saved. And this was the standard of the law, that if a man truly converted to Judaism... He had to adopt all of the laws. He had to be circumcised. He had to go through a cleansing ceremony and become a Jew. Not ethnically, because you can't do that, right? You can't change your biology, your DNA. But you could become a practicing Jew. You can adopt the covenantal law of Moses and join that covenant. And he says, if you really want to receive the salvation of the Jewish Messiah, then you have to accept the law. And it says... In verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They're arguing. They're saying, no, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. They don't have to be. And we see that there's a big debate that happens. But the way that I read the book of Galatians is when they appointed these men and they're sending uh, Paul and Barnabas and these other men to go to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, to talk to the elders, and to resolve this issue, I think that this is when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. I think this is when he writes the letter to the Galatians. He doesn't wait for the Jerusalem council to affirm yet again his gospel. He said they already affirmed it. They already told me that what I was doing was sufficient, and now... There's an argument about whether or not there were T's that were left uncrossed and I's that were left undotted. And we're going to go back and we're going to have this dispute and we're going to talk about it and get an official decision. But I'm not waiting for that response. I found out that these Jews, and this is the assumption, that came to Antioch and were saying that you must be circumcised to be saved. I'm finding out that they've already not only come to Antioch saying this, but they've already gone to all of the other places that I've preached and told them the same thing. And so he fires off this letter quickly, he writes it, sends it to the churches, and that's why I think there's no resolution at the end of this confrontation with Peter. Do you notice that? At the end of this confrontation with Peter, there's never a point when he says, Peter goes, you know what, Paul, you're right, and I'm sorry, and I repent, and I realize that you're right. There's no resolution. Maybe because Peter didn't know what to say. I'm rebuked. Maybe I need some time to pray about it, right? How many of you ever been there? Your wife, your husband, maybe your pastor, maybe a friend, somebody, they go to you, they approach you about something you've done and say, this is wrong according to scripture. I'm going to point it out to you and you need to do business with God. And you go, man, maybe you're right, but I just don't know yet. I'm going to have to go and let this sit on my conscience for a while. I'm going to go have to pray and let God God deal with my heart. And so I assume that that's why the story is not resolved. Because apparently, Acts chapter 15, Peter resolves it, right? He stands up and he says, how can we, if we weren't able to bear the, the yoke of the law, if we weren't able to carry this burden, how can we then go and put this yoke on these Gentiles? We shouldn't do that. James says the same thing. And so that would be a good point to put in the letter, right? That would be a good thing to bring up. Hey, this is a non-issue. Even the Jerusalem apostles agreed on this. But it's not yet resolved yet. And so I think this is when Peter was there in Antioch that we're kind of lining these two events up together where Peter is in Antioch 
with Paul and he says that he's eating with the Gentiles. He's, he's living like a Gentile. He's not living like a Jew. And then all of a sudden, these of the circumcision party, those who come believing that you have to be circumcised, they show up. Peter begins to distance himself. Paul has to address it. So let's look at what happens. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, back to our main text. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. This visual image is the idea of nose to nose. I got in his face. I didn't go behind his back and start talking about him to other people. I went up to his face and I said, what you're doing is not right. This is wrong. This is confrontational. This is Paul who is willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel no matter the cost. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned or he was to be blamed. There was, there was something wrong in his character. There was something wrong in the way that he was behaving. What is it that he was doing? It says in verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating with them. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, there's nothing in the law that says that a Jew cannot eat with Gentiles. There's nothing in the law that commands that. But it was an extension of the expectations. If there's supposed to be a distinction between us and them, if we're clean and they're unclean, if even our meals are distinct, if we have to make sure that there's no, there's no yeast in our food, if we have to make sure that there's nothing unclean, and we have to make sure that everything is separate, and we have to uh, ceremonially cleanse ourselves and wash ourselves even before we eat a meal, and we have to do those things to avoid contamination, and they don't follow these rules, they might contaminate and pollute us. And so it's just an outworking of that to be sure, to make sure that somehow we're not unclean. Let's make, their, make a hard line, draw a line in the sand, and separate. Let's separate. And so Peter's going, that line's erased. You're believers. You have faith in the Messiah. You're trusting Jesus. You're born again. There is new life in you. And so we're going to eat together. We're going to fellowship. We're going to share meals. We're going to acknowledge that we're part of the same covenant community. We're together. We're united. And can you imagine what this would be like to sit down at a table with one of the original 12 apostles? Can you imagine what this does for the faith of, of these believers, right? I mean, it's just, it must minister to their heart so amazingly, right? Uh, there, are, there are several men that if I'm going to a church to go fellowship and all of a sudden I'm sitting there and in the middle of the service and I realize, that guy's there, that preacher, that's my hero. That, that he, so much of his doctrine lines, I've, I've been blessed by him, I've been touched by him, his testimony, the work of God in his life. I just, I'm so grateful for this guy. And then I'm still excited about it. And after the service, we go sit down in the fellowship hall to eat. And then he pulls up a chair next to me and he sets his tray down next to me and he's eating with me. What? That guy, Wilkerson, sat down next to me. What? Clinton and sat down next to me. Are you joking me? This preacher, that pastor, that man of God. What an amazing Billy Graham came and sat next to me. Spurgeon at the same table. This is a hero. And what it must have done to testify to them, you're really in the community. You're really part of God's people. You're in the family. And you're not like weird part of the family where you're like, you're included, you get to be in the family photo, but nobody wants to talk to you, right? You're, you're in the family. And when we say in the family, you're in. He's eating with them. He's fellowshipping with them. The, the lines are erased. And then there comes a moment when certain men come from James. Now, Acts 15 tells us that these men came from James, but they're making an appeal that because we come from James, we carry a certain weight and authority, and therefore our message comes from James. And James says, they came from us, but we didn't tell them to say the things that they're saying to you, right? 
So uh, I love you to pieces. But if you go fellowship at another church and you go and tell them, uh, you know, if you want to be saved, you got to wear blue hats or you have to do this or you have to do that. Don't pretend that because you come from our church that I told you to go tell that to people, right? That's the point. They're saying we're associated with Jerusalem apostles. And so because we're associated with them, we're taught by them, we're discipled by them, our words carry more weight. And James separates himself from them and says, we didn't tell them to come and say that to you. But when they come, there's a sense of judgment. There's a weightiness to their eyes. They see Peter eating with these men and the look on their faces let Peter know, we don't think you should be doing this. You shouldn't be there with them. You should be making a distinction. Peter, God drew a line between faithful Jews who keep covenant and Gentiles who don't. And you are blurring that line. Isn't that the same thing that they accuse Jesus of? Right? You're blurring the line, Jesus. You're a friend of sinners. As if there was another kind of people to be friends with. Right? It's either friend of sinners or friends of no one. Because there's no one who's not a sinner. So either Jesus is nobody's friend or he's friend of sinners. The, the fact that they made that accusation tells you they didn't see themselves as sinners. And that's part of the issue in this text. Is they don't see themselves as sinners. And they're going, you are blurring the lines. Those are not people you should be eating with. He says, but when they came... He drew back and separated himself. He uses these two words, drew back and separated. Drew back and se He didn't just pull away. He put up barriers, right? So I'm going to enclose myself in this group of people. And if you want to talk to me, you got to go through these people. Or I'm not coming out when you guys are around. I'm, I'm making sure that I'm not associated with you. What would that do to your heart? What, what would that do if someone that you loved and respected and looked up to and saw as a blessing and they loved you and they hugged you and they said, you're in, you're part of the family, you're part of the community. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's not, nobody's even trying to hide it. It's super obvious that when certain people are around, they go, I can't be around you. You're going to make me look bad. What would the implication be? Well, before we deal with that, why did he do it? He says that he was fearing. He was fearful of people. He was fearful of their opinions. He was fearful of what they would think about him. He was afraid. They won't like me anymore. Maybe they'll accuse me. Maybe this will turn into a big mess Maybe they'll turn into accusations. Maybe they'll, they'll report me to the board. And I won't be able to be an apostle anymore. There will be conflict. And I, I just don't want conflict in the church. Surely there were ways that he justified this, right? right? You don't just, just do something wrong and without making an excuse. You go, well, I just don't want to cause conflict in the church. And so for the love of the church, I'll just make this a non-issue and I'll just pull away. And then when they leave, I'll go back and we'll fellowship again. But he was fearful of them. Leaders lead even when they're leading poorly. God's given you a responsibility to lead people. You are leading one way or another. Amen? So if, if you're a leader in the house of the Lord and you never go to church, you're leading people to say, well, this is the example of those the position and authority that I don't have to be faithful in church either. If you don't worship, you're not worshipful. Amen. Tell them I'll call them back later. It's all right. Praise God. Just the Bible app. She's It's the Bible app. She's got the Bible app on her phone. She accidentally hit play. It's okay. Some of y'all are looking at Facebook, right? So she's holier than you. She, at least it was the Bible app, right? She's better. She's going to separate herself from you and draw back. No. Facebook sinners. Sinners of the Facebookers. If you're not worshipful, you're not prayerful, you don't see a need to pray, you don't see a need to share the gospel, you don't see a need to love or forgive, then other people will follow your example because leaders are examples. 
And he says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. He said, well, man, Peter's pulling away. If Peter, the Peter, the Cephas, this guy, if he can't be around them, well, I don't want to be the one to get scolded or rebuked or questioned. So they pulled away so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, right? So it's your favorite preacher and then your second favorite preacher, right? It's not just the other people. It's your two favorite heroes and they're withdrawing from you going, I can't be seen with you. What does it say in verse 14? But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So notice what he says in verse 5 where he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So I'm, I'm dealing with the truth of the gospel. Now he says that Peter is living in a way that's not in step with the truth of the gospel. You can change the gospel by saying things different that make the content different. Or you can live in a way that makes the content look differently. Amen? You can say, okay, you don't need to repent of sin. You just need to have some wishy-washy faith or say a prayer in church once and you're good. And that's the, the magic fairy dust and you said the prayer, you did the magic incantation, you bowed the right way and whatever it is and you're saved. Or you can preach faith and repentance and just live an unrepentant life. Either way, you're changing the message. And he's saying... He's not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that they believe the gospel and they're part of the covenant community. But you're not walking in step with that. The gospel has feet. The gospel is walking. The gospel says you are part of God's family. And Paul said, Peter said, I'm, I'm walking in another direction and I'm going to let my life confess something different than the gospel because that might get me in trouble. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. This is the biblical principle. Private sin is corrected privately. Amen? Because love covers a multitude of sins. But public sin is confronted publicly because you've been an example in what you've done. And I not only have to address what you've done for you to repent and be restored, but I also have to remove the negative influence that your wrong behavior has had. And so it's not out of spite. He's not trying to be, oh, this is a chance to elevate myself above Peter because I'll be the one correcting him. That's not the point. Love doesn't want to hurt. Love doesn't want to tear down. Love doesn't want to embarrass anyone. That's not righteousness. But he has to do it because this is a public issue. And he says, I rebuked him before them all. Now, why didn't he say this to Barnabas? Why say this to Peter specifically? Why not say it to all of the church? All of you are acting this way. Or you and Barnabas are acting this way. Because Peter is the most influential person in the room. And when they're following your example, they're still guilty, but you led them into it. This is why James says, not many of you should be teachers. Because you're going to be du judged double strictly. And Peter, you've got more authority. You were there with Jesus. And everyone's following your example. And so what did he say to him? He rebuked him in front of them all. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the first point, and the first implication is that he says that Peter is a Jew, but he wasn't living like a Jew. In what ways was he not living like a Jew? Was he worshiping idols? I don't think so. Was he living in immorality in a way that people live when they don't have the, the moral code of the law to tell them they shouldn't behave certain ways? No. It was those distinctions, those holiness codes, those markers that God gave to people, to the Jews, to set them apart. There are the holiness codes or the markers, the distinct codes 
that God said, I'm doing this because you are a specific people. And I'm setting you apart from the rest of the world. So you can't wear mixed fabrics. Is it because mixed fabrics are unholy? Right? Do, do people who wear cotton and nylon tend to worship idols more? Is that, is that the problem? Are, are those who are wearing silk and nylon or silk and cotton, are those people more likely to commit adultery or lie? No. The point is that I am setting you apart and that your diet and your clothes and the way that you fix your hair, you can't shave the corners of your head, that I'm, do, I'm telling you there are certain things you need to do to set yourself apart. So you need to eat with certain cleanliness rules. You need to dress in a certain way. You need to uh, cut your hair a certain way. And I'm doing these things to show that you are separated. I'm making a physical example that these are people who don't worship God. They don't know God. They don't have the righteous standards of the word of God. And here are the people that do. And he says, you're not living distinctly as a Jew, being the first implication that they're eating together. And it might be that Peter's doing other things. Maybe Peter's eating a pork sandwich or having some bull crawfish, right? Maybe he's having some boudin, doing some, eating some things that are not in line with the Mosaic code. Anyway, whatever it is that he's doing, he's laid down the distinction of being Jewish. Not immoral, not sinful, not worshiping the wrong God, but those distinct markers, those things that God says, you will do this to show that you are not a part of the world. He said, those lines are erased. And I was eating with them and I was living like them. And he says, if you are a Jew and you have freedom to not have to keep those Jewish laws and not have to keep those standards, then why are you trying to compel those who are not Jews to keep those standards? And, and you look at this and you go, well, when did he try to force Gentiles to live like Jews? There's no point where he stood up in the pulpit and said, all right, church, we're going to get serious, open up to Deuteronomy, and here we go. Here are the rules, here's the law, and you have to keep it. He didn't do that. But can you imagine feeling like, oh, there are things that they don't do that we do, and because we do them and they don't, we can't truly be a part of the covenant community. They're signaling to us that we are second-class Christians, that we are not really faithful, we are not really obeying God, we are not really pleasing the Lord, and if we want to really be saved or really please God, then we need to do those things so that we get to be in the camp too. That apparently we got let into the party, but we didn't get the wristband or the stamp that says you can be here, right? I mean, if you go into Cajun Palms or someplace with your kids or Chuck E. Cheese and you walk in and they stamp your hand, they stamp your kid's hand. And I know that they're not going to do it, but I've walked around there before waiting for somebody to come out with one of those light things and check my hand and go, you can't be in here. I'm like, I'm sorry, don't let the rat beat me up, you know. You got in the party, but... You don't really belong here. And if you really want to stay and belong, you got to get the stamp. That's what you're compelling them to do, Peter. And how can you do that? Your life is not walking in step with the gospel. Then he says in verse 15, listen to this. This is his message to him. This is, here's the point. We ought to know better. That's the point. We ought to know better. Can I tell you, this is one of the greatest atrocities in the house of God. It is when those who have known the Lord and known the word of God and they've had a relationship with the Holy Spirit and they have been exposed to enough truth that they ought to be living differently than they are. That you ought to know better. Amen? Oh man, y'all need to wake up. He says, verse 15, We ourselves, me and you, Peter are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So there's two categories he's putting here. We are Jews by birth. We were born into this. We've got the covenants. We've got the promises. we got circumcision. We have the prophets. We have all of the law of God, all of the word of God. We have all of these benefits. We keep Passover. We keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We keep the, peace, uh, the Feast of Pentecost. We know all the rules, man. We've got all the revelation. 
We are not Gentile sinners yet, verse 16, yet, even with all of that benefit, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Because we were born into this and it didn't work. It didn't work salvation for us. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is what Peter says in Acts 15. Listen what it says, Acts chapter 15. This is the Jerusalem council. This is after Paul wrote the letter. So you can even hear the the provocative words of Paul. We are Jews. We know better. You ought to know better, man. You can hear that in Peter's words in Acts 15. That They've brought this argument up. They've brought it before the elders and the apostles. And it says in Acts 15 verse 7, And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. That separation, that line, I was wearing different clothes. I ate different things than than they did. That morning I had a kosher breakfast. They had bacon. And yet God says there's no line. God made no distinction. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? Do you know what the Jews to this day call the law? The yoke, that we're coupled together. We agree the yoke is opened like ox. We step in, it's clamped down on us, and we accept the burden, the responsibility to be united in covenant to this law and to carry this burden. And he says, verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We have 1,400 years of Jewish history of us failing in every single generation. Every single generation that From the time that Moses gave the law to the time of Christ, we have failed every time to keep it. Every single generation, the call of the prophets is you've disobeyed. You've not kept the law. 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 You've not not lived up to the standard. Jeremiah would say you broke the covenant. Ezekiel would say you forgot the covenant. They would say you abandoned the covenant. You left the covenant. All of these words, you're not keeping the covenant. The point is, they weren't able to bear it. And we've not done any better. We've done no better than them. And this is always what every generation thinks. How many of you first got saved, you started reading the Bible, especially the narratives in the Old Testament, and you read how they're faithful, they obey God, they keep the law, and then very shortly after they become unfaithful, they worship idols, they get into sin, and consequences come on them, and you read those narratives and you go, how could they? Don't you get it? Don't you see? How can you be unfaithful? Just obey God. It's so simple. You know, we don't get it. I would not do that. I would be more faithful. And then you walk with the Lord for a while and you go, golly, I'm just like them. That's the same thing that Elijah said is in 1 Kings chapter 19, after he calls down fire from heaven, right? Fire from He was faithful. And then Jezebel sends a threat to him and he runs in terror and fear and he says, it is enough, Lord. Kill me now. I am no better than my father's. Right? I'm the prophet that stood up and stood for the word of God and said, return to the Lord and don't be unfaithful. And yet here I am being unfaithful. I thought I was better than my father's, but I'm just like them. And Peter says, if 
all of our fathers and us were born with this covenant. And we had from the time we were born until the time that we died to try and be faithful to it. And we failed. Why are you then going to go take that same yoke and go put it on other people? Why are you going to do that? Do you want them to try again too? He says, if you do that, you are putting God to the test. You're fighting against the witness of God. Isn't that reminiscent of Paul's words? For we are Jews, and we know that this doesn't work. And then Peter goes, come on guys, we didn't do it well either. Back to our text. And we're going to be done in ten minutes. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, verse 16, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know because we failed and we never felt justified, our hearts still condemned us. And what Hebrews says is that every year you needed to renew the sacrifice. Every year you needed to renew the sacrifice. You needed to offer the Passover again for the sins of the people because we accumulated more debt. We accumulated more guilt. And every year the Passover reminded us, you're guilty and you need atonement. You're guilty and you need atonement. You're guilty and you need atonement. And your conscience was never free. We know that. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one or no flesh will be justified. God will not consider anyone just or righteous or clean in his sight because they've done the right things. Now, the, the point of this is, I want you to think with me again, all right? Think with me. What is not being dealt with here yet is the idea of whether or not people come to faith in Christ and they should in some sense be people who look to the law for truth or revelation or if they should somehow keep the law. The immediate context is specifically in the, in the light of how are we justified, right? And the reason that this is important is because there are arguments, there are considerations for whether or not, okay, people, certain people would say, well, no, we're not justified by the law. We're justified by the blood of Jesus, but we should still keep the law. Or there's new, there's ways that we should keep the law. Well, Paul says in, later in Galatians that, that uh, the whole law is fulfilled in this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's conversations to be had about that later. But the point up front is that you can't be justified. You can't be righteous. You can't be part of the covenant community by doing certain things. And the implication is, Peter, if you're telling them that they don't belong to the covenant community because you're not treating them like part of the covenant community and they need to do that to get into it, you're telling them that they're not justified. You're telling them that they're not saved. You tell them that they don't belong. Listen to this, verse 17, and we're almost done. This is the last idea, 18. Or 17 and 18. He says this, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? If he's saying, this is his point, there are those who are hearing my message and say, there are sinners of the Gentiles, right? This is how they considered them. Gentiles are sinners, but we are not sinners. And he says, no, I'm saying all of us are under the banner of being sinners. And the accusation is, well, if you're saying that you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith apart from works, and that all people are sinners, then you're making Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of sin, you're saying that he's an accomplice. You're saying that he's playing a part. He is allowing you to be a sinner and yet justifying you. You're making Jesus the servant of sin. This is always the argument. This is the argument in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? If you're saying we're not saved by what we do, then you're saying we can keep on sinning and it doesn't matter. He says, is that true? If, if, in our, if our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we're acknowledging that we're sinners too. If the law has revealed in us that we are sinners just as much as Gentiles are sinners, does that make Jesus, does that make, make the Messiah the servant of sin? What an accusation against him. The reason that this is so significant is it turns the role of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, backwards. 
Because listen what it says in Isaiah 53 in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. The righteous one, my servant. Who is the Messiah? Who is he? He's the righteous one. And you're saying that you can be saved apart from works. You're making the righteous one an accomplice in your sin. This is the accusation. And you see the point. He says, is that true? Are we making Christ, the Messiah, the servant of sin, the slave of sin, the participant in sin? Certainly not. May it never be. If you're telling me that if I tell you I'm a sinner and I need to be saved apart from my works, then I'm making the Messiah an accomplice in sin, then I can't be saved because there's no other option. I can't deny that I'm a sinner so that I don't make him look bad by associating with me. Listen to what he says in verse 18, and this is the last verse, and this is the lead-in to the last point. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what in the world is that talking about? That's ambivalent, or that it's just it's it's sort of vague, it's not expressed very fully. You have to sort of read the context to get his point. If I rebuild what I tore down, so there's something that's constructed. I tore down. He did that. I tore something down. And if I then go and rebuild what I tore down, if something was constructed, something existed, a a concept within the minds of people, and I tore that down, if I then go and rebuild that, if I reestablish that concept in people's minds, I'm showing myself to be a sinner. If Paul did one thing and now he does the opposite, it means that one of them is wrong. Either he tore something down that didn't need to be tore down, or he must build something back up that he never should have torn down. Do you see the point? He's in trouble if he does, he's in trouble if he doesn't. If I tore it down, and I have to go rebuild it, either rebuilding it was wrong, or tearing it down in the first place was wrong. Either way, I'm showing myself to be a sinner. Let's consider this morning which action either tearing down or building up is the one that would make him a sinner. He doesn't tell us. He just says, if I tore something down and I build it back up, I'm showing myself to be a sinner. Well, was it tearing it down in the first place that's making you a sinner, or is it building it back up that makes you a sinner? And what did he tear down, and what's he building up? Do you see why this is complicated? Right? So you're holding on with me this morning. We are in the home stretch. I'm telling you, three more minutes three more minutes, but if I don't think you're getting it, it's going to drag on for 20. So you paying attention? Hallelujah. We got ushers by the door. They're going to keep you in. All right. Amen. We need to jump, do jumping jacks. Which action is the one that would make him a sinner? And what is it that was torn down hypothetically that needs to be rebuilt? This is option A. We'll go over two options. Option A, the first one, if it was tearing down that made him a sinner, tearing down that made him a sinner. And what was it that he tore down? If Paul tore down the concept of justification through the law to say that justification comes through Christ, but now must rebuild that concept because he was wrong, that proves he was a sinner for having first torn down the concept of works-based righteousness. So he's saying, if they're right, if me preaching grace and not law is making Jesus a minister of sin... And now I have to go back and build up the concept, you know what, I was wrong, you have to keep the law to be justified. If I have to go rebuild that, then I'm saying I was wrong. I was a sinner for tearing that concept down in the first place. If saying that all men are sinners and need to be saved by grace apart from any righteousness of their own, doing works of the law, makes Christ to be a minister of sin then Paul should have never torn down the concept of works-based righteousness in the first place. Then he must now rebuild that idea in the minds of those who believe in Jesus. And doing that will show that he was a sinner for tearing down that idea in the first place. Right? You look at someone, you tore, they tore something down, and they're building it up exactly the way that it was before. And you go, why are you doing that? The very fact that you're doing it is a confession that you were wrong. And that you were a sinner for tearing that idea down, 
right? So how many times have you heard a preacher? Now, listen, I've never heard one of these preachers do this and then be faithful to it. Usually they do this in public and then they slowly go back to what they were doing. But how many of you have heard a preacher say, you know what, I preached certain things, I preached money, or I preached certain things in a way that was selfish and wrong, and I recognize that it was wrong, and I repent of that, and I won't preach that anymore. And now they're preaching the opposite. The fact that they're preaching the opposite of that says, well, what I was saying before was wrong, right? So Paul says, if you see me doing that, if you see me preaching the opposite of what I preached before, then it makes what I did wrong. Therefore, because I do that, I'm a sinner. I'm acknowledging I am guilty. Then the second option is not tearing down that made him a sinner, but it is building up that makes him a sinner. Let's consider that option. And then what is it that he's building up that makes him a sinner? If preaching grace the way that Paul does builds up the construct that Christ is the minister of sin by teaching that all men are sinners, thus making Christ's effort to save them an act of complicity or that he's going along with it, then Paul is guilty. If he made Jesus look bad by saying, you can be saved by grace apart from works, the Messiah will save you apart from the law. And by doing that, he made Jesus look bad. You're a sinner. Right? You're a sinner if you do that. He says, because he tore down the accusation that Christ was a minister of sin when he repented of calling the way a heresy and Jesus a false Messiah. So the point is, for years he's been preaching, you know what? I said Jesus was a false teacher, that his way was heresy, and that he was not the Messiah. And for years I've been preaching that's not true. I've been tearing down the concept, Jesus is fake. Jesus is a heretic. Jesus is a false Messiah. I've been tearing that concept down, and now I'm building it up unintentionally. I'm building up the idea that Jesus is a minister of sin by saying that Jesus goes along with sinners being sinful. Do you see that? He says, if I am doing that, then I'm building up what I tore down. If Paul was unwittingly making Christ to be an accomplice of sinners in their sin, then he has built up an accusation against him. This is, in effect, the same accusation he has torn down for years in his preaching the gospel. He has declared him to be, quote, the Holy One, Acts 13.35, and said that the rulers of Jerusalem, quote, found in him no guilt, Acts 13.28. Yet if those of the circumcision party were right, he has actually been associating Christ with sin. And so if Paul changes his message, either way, the point is he's a sinner. Now why does that matter? Is it impossible for Paul to be a sinner? Is he so holy and righteous that people should look at him and go, the idea of Paul being wrong? No, he could never be wrong. He could never be a sinner. That's not the point. The reason that this is so important to Paul's argument is because it shows that either way, he is a sinner. And for Christ to save him, he must be dealt with as a sinner. There is no way to allow Paul to stay in a category separate from Gentile sinners. That's the point. He said, we're not sinners of the Gentiles. And the assumption is that that means we're not sinners. We are good. We are morally acceptable in the eyes of God. And he says, either way, if if my first assumption is right, that I'm a sinner, even though I'm a Jew, even though I do all the Jewish things that I'm supposed to do, if I'm still a sinner and need to be saved, I'm a sinner. And if I was wrong in what I preached and I made Jesus the minister of sin, then I'm still a sinner. Either way, I'm a sinner, and for Jesus to deal with me, he must deal with me as a sinner. There is no way to allow Paul to stay in a category separate from Gentile sinners. Therefore, for Christ to be able to save Paul, even as a Jew, it must be as a Jewish sinner. His Jewishness didn't save him from developing a sinful condition, either before he became a Christian or if his detractors are right afterward in preaching grace. So if Christ can't save sinners apart from works, Paul cannot be saved and has no hope even in the Messiah. And if there is a Jew who is beyond the realm of salvation, the Messiah isn't a good Messiah. Right? For for the Messiah, my Holy One, shall save his people from their sins. Right? That's the promise that the Messiah would do. He would save his people from his sins. And if I'm a sinner, 
and I can't be saved apart from works of the law, then there's no hope for me. And if Jesus can't save me, he's a poor Messiah. In other words, for Jesus to really be the Messiah and to be an acceptable Messiah, he has to be able to save men apart from the law because there's no other option. If you're telling me, Paul, if you preach that, you're making yourself a sinner. He said, that's what I already am. There's no hope for me. If Jesus doesn't save sinners, then there's no salvation for me. And so your threat doesn't change my mind. You can't work against me this idea. If you preach that, you're a sinner and you can't be saved. Well, I'm already a sinner and I can't be saved. So I've got to acknowledge that all of us are under sin and the works of the law can't save me. And so I must be justified apart from my ability to keep God's standards. God will justify me. God will declare me to be righteous apart from any works based upon the works of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Amen? And so that is our hope this morning. That's our life this morning. That's our joy this morning that Jesus can save me apart from my ability to save me. Amen? Praise God. That's the point this morning. Amen. Some of you are amen and just because you think I'm almost done. I am. Praise God. Give, give the Lord some praise no matter what. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the point this morning. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Apart from anything that they can do. And any way that we preach or any way that we treat people that contradicts that idea. That Jesus will save you apart from any external thing. Your ethnicity, your behavior, your ability to keep certain rules or not. Anything that implies you cannot be saved apart from those things is a contradiction to the gospel. And we must make sure that the way we treat one another requires repentance from sin. Yes but allows us to be part of the kingdom of God apart from any goodness in and of ourselves? Absolutely. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. That we are sinners saved by grace. That we are made to be saints, not because of anything that we've done, but because Jesus has made us holy. Amen? That Jesus has made us holy. Hebrews chapter 10, He hath perfected for all time. Those who call on him by the sacrifice, by the offering of one sacrifice. By one sacrifice, not of blood, the blood of bulls or lambs or goats, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus has perfected you forever. And then in the end of that, at the end of that passage, wherefore he's not ashamed to call you his brethren. Jesus has made you holy by the blood. Amen? So, can Jews be brought into the kingdom? Yes. Can non-Jews be brought into the kingdom by a Jewish Messiah? Yes. We can be saved by the grace of God alone. Amen. Praise God. Let's stand up this morning and rejoice in Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you love us.